are here today for an ATS podcast through the Assembly on Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology. Today we'll be discussing the role of the lymphatics in lung disease. My name is Rachel Knipe and I'm an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a physician in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm joined today by two experts in the field of lung lymphatics. Dr. Hasina Outs-Reed, an assistant professor of medicine at Weill Cornell School of Medicine and a physician in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. And Dr. Suhail El-Chamali, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Clinical Director of the Center for Lamb Research and Clinical Care at Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. Thank you so much both for joining me today. To start the conversation, um, I wanted to ask, what is the role of the lymphatics in the healthy lung? And are any of these functions unique to the lung or are they shared between all the organs? Okay, well, I can I can get to start off. Thanks so much for having us. We're sort of, uh, you know, so excited to talk about the lung lymphatics and sort of raise a little bit more awareness about the work that we do and how important these vessels are. So, you know, I think um, the lymphatics in the lungs, like in other organs, are very important for draining fluid and trafficking immune cells um, from the tissue. But I think what's interesting is that for a long time, the lymphatic vasculature has been thought of as sort of a passive structure that sort of just drained, um, just drained lymph from the organ, but really that's starting to change. And we're really starting to recognize more of an immunologic role of these vessels. And so the importance of how they interact with the immune system, how they interact with immune cells that they traffic, I think is um, starting to be super paramount. So that's just something that I think as a field, it's really starting to take precedence to look at these vessels as the active role that they're playing in sort of uh, baseline lung function and in disease. Yeah, I want to echo the same things as uh, Hasina has just said. Thank you for having us. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the lung lymphatics, uh, just like Hasina said, I mean, they have probably slightly different roles and in other organs as well, just because they're one of the few organs in contact with the outside. And, you know, you're asking the lung to filter 10,000 liters of air, uh, give or take per day. And, you know, highlighting the, the importance of the lymphatics in maintaining uh, lung homeostasis beyond just being uh, pipes to drain things out of the lung. So how did the two of you get even get interested in lymphatic research? How did you learn about it and get excited about it? Well, so I'm a vascular biologist by training. And so um, when I was a postdoctoral fellow at University of Pennsylvania, I joined Mark Kahn's lab um, and his lab studies the lymphatic as well as the blood vasculature. And there was a project in the lab about the lymphatics in the lungs. And I ended up taking over that project. And it was really just a perfect fit because it just combined um, my interest and background in vascular biology with my clinical training as a pulmonary critical care doctor. And the more I got interested in the vessels, the more I realized um, sort of how much we had to learn about them. I was super inspired by Suheil's papers and his work um, going into it as well. And so I think it really just ended up being a very organic and very fulfilling process. Well, I appreciate that. But uh, I'm sure Mark, Mark, uh, Mark is a fantastic person and fantastic uh, lymphatic biologist and vascular biologist. I came to it, actually, I backed my way into it in many ways. I when was going to was interviewing for postdoctoral positions to do research. I was coming back from uh, from Lebanon after spending three years there waving my visa, and I was going to come back to the NIH intramural program to work with uh, Dr. Marta Vaughn, who uh, is a member was a member of the academy, and her lab had just cloned uh, uh, Big One and Big Two, which are guanine exchange factors. 
And I was going to come back to the NIH to work with Dr. Vaughn on Big One and Big Two. And I walked into her office first day on the job, and she was waiting for me with uh, Dr. Joel Moss. And they said, do you want to work on lymphatic? (laughs) (laughs) After spending X many years, you know, months (laughs) reading about GEFs and everything. And I was like, I don't know anything about lymphatics. I said, you know, they said, well, take your time, read about it and see if you'll be interested to work on it. And, you know, they did highlight the point that as a physician uh, and not just not a basic scientist uh, by training, it's probably good to work on something that would have more immediate translational applicability. Um, and sure enough, they were right. You know, I spent some time reading about lymphatics, figured out that we actually do have tools to look at lymphatics rather than does it have a red cell in it, does it not have red cell in it, in, in, which makes it a lymphatic back in the day. So uh, that's how I started working on lymphatics in, uh, at the NIH intramural program. It does seem that they're, um, you know, relative to other organs, the lymphatics in the lung, have, we don't know as much about their function, both in health and disease. Why, why would you say, why do you think this is? Well, I mean, I think that there's a lot of reasons. I think some of them just ended up being the people who are the vascular biologists studying the lymphatics were looking at other organ systems. The people looking at the lungs were looking at other things. I also think lymphatics in general, compared to the blood vasculature, it took a while to figure out the markers of lymphatics. And in the lungs, the, you know, the, the lung specific markers are also different. And so there's been a little bit of a learning curve in terms of figuring out exactly how to best analyze these vessels, a lot of the tools that are used in other organs, you can't use in the lungs necessarily. So, um, you know, but now I think there's a lot of really great work being done in this area, but I do, I do think it just took a little bit of time to figure out what was the best approach to kind of study them. Yeah, I, I agree with Hasina completely. I, I, perhaps maybe add because of the limitations of the models that we use in a, our animal models. I mean, as you know, Rachel, no, no animal model is perfect in the lung, far from it. So I think we learn a lot about lung injury. We learn a lot about you know fibrosis, maybe. We learn a lot about COPD, emphysema, transplant. Um, but exactly how these things are translatable to human disease is quite a bit more challenging to, to extrapolate from, uh, from these animal models. I will say actually though, that there was a, a sort of a bit of a gap because back in the, I would say there was a lot of physiologic studies and physiology studies about how the lung lymphatics work and how lung lymphatic drainage work using larger animal models like in sheep and pigs and dogs. And so back when those animal models were more in favor, I think that was kind of a bit of a golden era in which we actually learned a lot about lung lymphatic biology. And those studies have completely held up. I mean, they were really, really well done studies. It's just now it's much more rare for people to be using large animal models, although there still are some using them. So um, I definitely think as things transitioned away from those larger animal models, that too added to a bit of the gap um, in the study of those vessels. Yeah, that's a great point. That makes a lot of sense. Dr. Outsreed, you published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation sort of demonstrating that impairment of the lung lymphatics led to an inflammatory state with the development of tertiary lymphoid organs and alveolar damage that resembled emphysema. Can you tell us a little bit about the implications of some of these findings from your work? 
Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, these the studies that we did really demonstrated a baseline role for the lymphatics and the immune response in the lungs and really a lung-specific consequence of lymphatic dysfunction. So these TLOs or BALT, as we call them in the field, um, are found very often in lung injury, as I'm sure um, you know. But we were the first to really show that they can occur directly as a result of lymphatic dysfunction. And that was a pretty novel finding. And then furthermore, our work suggested that the TLOs or the BALT that formed in the setting of lymphatic dysfunction are in fact pathogenic and contribute to lung injury. So I think we're really now starting to unpack and explore this further and investigate how lymphatic dysfunction primarily and then subsequent TLO formation can be a mechanism of lung injury in a variety of settings and really linking lymphatic dysfunction to the pathogenesis of lung disease. Really interesting. And so um, what are some of the next steps for the projects that you're, that you're working on? Yeah, so we're really excited about the work that we're doing now and specifically looking at um, whether and how lymphatic dysfunction occurs in, in chronic lung disease. So namely in cigarette smoke-induced emphysema, where there's a pretty tight link between BALT formation um, and disease uh, severity and pathogenesis. And we're trying to connect these dots and see um, whether lymphatic dysfunction is involved in this as well. And so we're using both um, human tissue and um, animal models to really investigate a direct role for lymphatic dysfunction in this disease. That's really interesting. Um, and potentially targetable, like what, what are your thoughts about being able to target these dis this dysfunctional process in terms of disease treatment? Absolutely. So some of the things that we're seeing is that the lymphatic dysfunction may actually be a very early event in the pathogenesis of emphysema. And so if we're able to target this lymphatic dysfunction, we could potentially sort of reverse the changes that are occurring much later, right? So the things that start to, to happen in emphysema in terms of breakdown of the um, elastin and alveolar enlargement would be a later stage versus the lymphatic dysfunction being earlier is definitely a potentially targetable area um, in the pathogenesis of this disease that we're super excited about. And how about identifying it? Markers or um, ways to find this sort of early events um, in terms of being able to treat them. Right. So, and, and that's a really important piece, whether we can identify this in human disease. And we have some clues um, from both our animal models and our human tissue, um, but it's really early in these studies, but it's definitely something that we're working on. Fascinating. Um, is this also something that could occur with other toxins that are inhaled, such as pollution? Or yeah, environmental toxins. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, as was mentioned before, the lungs are sort of bathed in our environment at all times, right? We're always inhaling all kinds of things that the lungs are exposed to, and the lymphatics are exposed to that as well. So um, in addition to cigarette smoke, whether pollutants or even um, e-cigarettes or vaping, the, the extent to which uh, those factors could affect lymphatic uh, function are a huge uh, focus of our lab as well. Great. Um, Dr. Al-Chamali, you've done a lot of research on LAM um, and also the role of lymphatics in other interstitial lung diseases, including IPF. You know, you've published that an IPF increased alveolar lymphangiogenesis and lymphatic density was associated with severity of disease. There's been some other studies, though, that have shown through animal models that perhaps impairment of the lymphatics, you know, could contribute to the development of, of fibrosis. What are your thoughts about some of these results and, and the role of the lymphatics in interstitial disease, lung disease? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously complicated. Yeah, I wish we could, um, you know, show something as clean as uh, Hasina's paper, which I thought was phenomenal because it's really the first paper to show that 
is all it takes is you, you to is to impair the lymphatics to get a disease. You don't need anything else. Well, you don't need anything else, which you know for a lymphatic biologist is like super exciting. Uh, we're at least finally getting some credibility that you need to change the lymphatics one way or the other. Now in, in ILD, I think it's a little bit more complicated. So we had shown that with worse diseases, more lymphatics and others have shown that these lymphatics are actually not functional. So just the fact that you have more doesn't mean that all these vessels are actually functional and doing what they're supposed to do. Um, the animal model in the BLEO model, uh, I think Peter, Peter Balak in, in Donald McDonald lab, you know, show, uh, published, I think a couple of years ago, that in the BLEO model, you have an increase in lymphatic over time with the, with the acute inflammation initially, which is not surprising, right? I mean, you have a lot of inflammation, you'll have a lot of uh, uh, lymphatics, and that will actually uh, you know, disappear by day 56, go back to normal when fibrosis all resolved uh, in the BLEO model. They also did show that if you impair lymphatics or if you stimulate lymphatics, you actually have better outcome uh, if you stimulate, if you impair, you have worse outcome. The problem is that this was done early on in the inflammatory phase of the BLEO model. So it's hard to know precisely how that links up to the fibrotic stage. You, you know, you could in theory separate inflammation and fibrosis, but it doesn't necessarily answer the question. What is more intriguing in, in my mind is that, you know, we now treat patients with pulmonary fibrosis with nintetinib, which is really a pan-tyrosine kinase inhibitor, including, you know, some of the lymphatic signaling pathways, VEGFR2, VEGFR3, and, and patients do better, you know, whether or not, you know, nintetinib is actually having any direct effects on the lymphatics uh, in disease, or it's actually targeting a different cell and lymphatics are just bystanders. It's difficult to tell, but, but it's hard to imagine that lymphatics are not affected one way or the other uh, by a pantyrosine kinase inhibitor. So, you know, having more, and, but having more that are functional is probably the way to go. Just to extrapolate a little bit, we, we have shown, at least in a lung transplant model, that uh, lymphatics are critical to drain hyaluronan. And, and once you drone, drain hyaluronan, you have less injury. And similarly, you know, hyaluronan is critical in pulmonary fibrosis, in animal models of pulmonary fibrosis. So, so it goes to, to, in the same vein, to say that, you know, if you improve lymphatic or if you improve lymphatic function in a, in a lung injury model or in a fibrosis model, that you should probably drain more hyaluronan and hopefully, therefore, achieve a better outcome. But unfortunately, we're um, not very close to figuring out the answer uh, in an interstitial lung disease or in a fibrotic, fibrotic lung disease. I think you raise a really important point, though, about how um, critical it is to really look at lymphatic function, not so much sort of just looking at the number of lymphatic vessels that are there in disease, because there's actually been so many studies really just analyzing lymphatic density, and it isn't necessarily a proxy for their function. And obviously assessing lymphatic function in the lungs is difficult uh, in both, you know, animal models and in humans, obviously, but really a critical question. We really need to know how these vessels are functioning in disease states more, or at least in addition to knowing how they're changing in terms of number and their characteristics, I think. 
Yeah, those are great points. You know, I think one of the issues that we all struggle with in terms of lung biology is how do we study function? You know, how do we get inside the lungs? It's very difficult to biopsy the lung at various time points. Um, and so are there tools that are being developed, whether imaging or through circulating cells uh, that are being developed modalities that can help us to study the lymphatics in the lung going forward in patients? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the lung lymphatics are hard, right? Uh, you know, they're below the current resolution of, of our imaging modalities. I mean, what you can image is certainly the thoracic duct. You could do, you know, T2-weighted MRIs, and you can see if there's a lymphatic leak, et cetera. But um, actually imaging the lymphatics in the lung parenchyma is quite a bit more challenging. Um, I mean, you could do it uh, in specific circumstances. For example, if you're looking for the draining lymph node, right? You can inject the tumor and see where the, the dye goes and you can find the draining lymph node of a particular tumor intraoperatively, right? So that you could do. But in terms of figuring out, uh, you know, the uh, lymphatics by just simple imaging as a CT scanner or, or MRI, we, we are far below the, the limit of detection of these, uh, of these techniques. Um, we hopefully will get there eventually, um, but, but that's not, nothing is available uh, at least now. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I'd love to envision a day in which lymphangiograms or something that can be done so we can know what the lymphatics look like and what their drainage is like in various disease states, but we're just not there. I think um, there, are, there are folks and there are settings in which that's, possible and you can really see the anatomy of the lymphatic vessels in the lungs. But um, yeah, it's just, it's just tough right now. Understandable. So in your mind, what are some of the big remaining questions in the fields of, um, you know, lymphatic biology in the lung? I know we've talked about some of them here, um, you know, next steps of your own research. I mean, I think there's so many, right? I mean, we really yeah. don't know how or whether lymphatic function is altered in disease and the mechanisms by which this occurs. We have some really great clues um, from the work that's been done, but I think, you know, this is a vital question moving forward. There's a, it's an entire sort of cellular compartment in the lung that is not really being looked at um, routinely when it comes to the pathogenesis of lung disease. And even, you know, as we just talked about the um, the ability to really image these vessels, to really be able to know um, not only their anatomy, but also their function, I think is really paramount. And until we figure those things out, it's going to be tough to think about targeting them for therapy. So I think there's just really so much to be done in this area. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, uh, I think all of these are, are critical questions. I think, you know, figuring out if the mechanism of induction or the mechanism of inhibition of lymphangiogenesis is similar say in, you know, in an acute lung inflammation, like in the BLEO model, or translate that to humans in uh, ILD, um, and similar to, let's say, in asthma um, and, and reactive airways disease, is, are, are similar pathways at work? Are, are the maintenance programs for these newly formed lymphatics, are they the same? Do all these diseases behave in the same? We do know, for example, in the skin, that the skin lymphatics respond differently to different injuries, right? If you have a viral infection, you don't necessarily have lymphangiogenesis because you don't want to spread the virus everywhere. We know in the cornea that, you know, depending on what the injury model is, you have different responses of the lymphatics. We're not quite there in the lung, and I think it's critical. I also think it's critical to figure out 
you know, compounds that could modulate lymphangiogenesis that are, you know, easy to put in humans, right? Uh, we currently use VEGFC or, or similar compounds to induce the lymphatics. It's incredibly unlikely that's ever going to make it to, to people, uh, you know, VEGFC as a growth factor. So whether other compounds can be discovered that can actually induce lymphangiogenesis, I, I think is a critical, is a really important question. You know, the focus of research is obviously to block lymphangiogenesis that's stemming from cancer. Uh, so people are looking for drugs that, you know, monoclonals against VEGFR3, et cetera, that, that could block lymphangiogenesis because the, 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 therapeutic, the obvious therapeutic area is cancer. But there's quite a lot of diseases where it seems like, you know, maybe you don't necessarily need to induce lymphangiogenesis, but you definitely need to improve lymphatic function, uh, at least in the lung. And how you achieve that, I think, I think is a critical, critical area of, of research because, you know, you may not need in the lung to systemically administer it, right? You could always nebulize it uh -huh. um, and, and hopefully achieve a, um, uh, a better outcome. Yeah, that's an excellent point about getting at the lung specifically with through inhaled therapies um, down further down the road. Well, thank you very much for um, sharing this time with us and sharing your work. Of, you know, thank you for all the work you've done on the lymphatics. And we look forward to all the exciting data that's going to come out of your both of your labs over the next couple of years. Any final thoughts you'd like to share with the ATS community about um, the lymphatics and the lungs? I know. Just thank you so much for having us. This has been so fun, um, you know, just to be able to, to talk and, and to, you know, just have people think a little bit more about these vessels. So this has been really great. Thanks so much. Same. Thank you so much for, for having us. This was, uh, this was great. And hopefully a lot more people get interested in, um, in lymphatics. Um, that may actually include study sections too. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hard to, you know, the lung lymphatics, it's like, it, I think it, it really um, is really actually in a very exciting field because there's so much to know. So hopefully we can we can convey that to people. Yeah, perfect. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. Thank well, you. Thank you so much. This has been great.